welcome, welcome to church this morning. I hope that you came with expectation. Uh, Scott's got an amazing word. The worship is incredible. I know it's going to bless your um, souls today. Would you stand up on your feet and let's begin this morning by going to the uh, Lord in prayer. Pray with me. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Lord, we come to you this morning, um, God, with just open hearts and open minds. Lord, we, we want to be in your will today. We thank you that your presence is here already. Uh, and that you desire to move in us. So let us come willing this morning just to lay it all before you. God, to be here in this moment, right here and right now, knowing that you've got something so amazing for us today. We love you. Um, I pray for every uh, heart that's here today, um, Lord, and the challenges that they might be facing. Um, God, bring hope and peace to them this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come on, let's worship together today. Search the world, but it couldn't fill me. And man's empty praise, treasures that fade are never enough. And you came along and put me back together.
we thank you for rest this morning. We thank you for peace. God, just flood this place as we connect to you this morning. As the Spirit was moving over the water, Spirit, come move over us. Come rest on us. Come rest on us. As the Spirit was moving over the water, Spirit, come move over us. Come rest on us. Come rest on us. Sing that chorus with us. Come now. Make my heart pound when you feel the room. You're here and I know you are moving. I'm here and I know you will feel me calm down. Spirit, when you move, you make my heart pound when you feel the room.
so thankful for the presence of God. Amen. Just what he means to us. And he's always there. He's always with us. Um, I just wanted to share a, a quick thought about why we worship this morning. I thought it might be helpful um, before we move into our last worship song. So if you look around the room, every single one of us here uh, has a different, we, we, have, we come from all sorts of different denominations, uh, church backgrounds. Maybe you grew up and your idea of worship was uh, kneeling in silence at the altar. Maybe it was like me and there was a lot of stuff going on with hands and shouting and all kinds of things. There's so many beautiful ways. All of, there's no wrong way to worship Jesus. You know, it, it, he moves in so many different ways. Um, we all feel comfortable differently, but it's not about this morning the how we're worshiping, but it's about who we're worshiping and the why. We worship, why we worship? We worship God because he's God and we are not. Can I get an amen for that? We know that he is holy. The word in Hebrew, actually, the word holy in Hebrew is kadosh, and it means set apart. So when we're here and we're actually worshiping, we're, we're taking his name. We're saying, God, you are holy. I know that we are not. I know we have need for you, and, and we are going to set you apart. In this time, we're going to focus, and we're going to draw attention to you and you only. That's what he's holy. We're setting him apart. Um, and then one other quick thought, and that is just that, you know, uh, worship is not just us warming up for the pastor. I hope y'all know that, Right? <laughs> It, it's not just it's not just for that. It's a beautiful thing that happens and it does get us warmed up. But God wants to move in worship too. He he has a purpose uh, for that. When we open up our hearts and we begin to sing these songs in worship, He can move in us through the music just as much as through the through the message. So let's continue to focus our hearts on Him this morning. He's got something so special for us today. Christ is my firm foundation The rock on which I stand When everything around me is shaking oh, I've never been more glad That I put my faith in Jesus Cause He's never let me down He's faithful I've still got joy in chaos I've got peace that makes no sense I won't be going under I'm not held by my own strength Cause I built my life on Jesus He's never He won't. He won't. He won't. He 
Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness, not just to us, but to all those who came before us, that we can look back over generations and just see stories of your faithfulness and see that you have never changed, God, but that you have been the same, God, from the very beginning to today. And we can trust that that will continue and that you will continue to be the same faithful, consistent God that you always have been. God, I thank you that because of that, we can trust and build our foundation on you and know that that foundation will never crumble on us, will never sway or change, but, uh, but will be firm and consistent. And that no matter what uh, life throws our way, God, we can always turn and see you in the same place in your throne room that you have always been and trust that that will never change, God. I pray that as Scott uh, comes up here to, uh, to share the, the word that you've laid on his heart for us today, God, that you would move in power through that message, that it would not just fall on us and, and we leave unchanged, but God, that you would change hearts and, and, change, uh, and change lives through the sharing of your gospel. Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray all these things in the name of your precious and holy son, Jesus. Amen. Before you guys are seated, if you'll turn and greet the people around you, shake some hands, learn some names. If you're uh, joining us online, we're so glad you're here with us today. We'll be back shortly. Good morning. Hope you are doing well this morning. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us today at Community Life Church on this beautiful Sunday morning. My name is Scott Verna, and I'm the lead pastor here at Community Life, and it is an honor um, to have you joining us in our family room or joining us online. You know, we do not take it for granted. There are a lot of things that you could be doing on a Sunday morning. It means the world to us um, that you would take time out um, to hang out with us. And so thank you for being here. At Community Life, we love God, we love our neighbor, and we believe that our mission is to connect people to Jesus because we believe that Jesus is the source of life. And our hope is that when you discover and you get a hold of that source of life, that you'll not turn loose, but that you'll also let everybody else know about that very source of life. And, um, and if there's anything we can do to stand alongside you in this crazy journey, uh, we would love to do exactly that. It'd be one of the high honors of, of our lives as well. So, um, so a couple quick announcements, and then um, we're going to jump into the last part of our, our series on one another. Um, on September 6th, so that's Wednesday, not this coming Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, we will have a family dinner, and we're going to do something so awesome on that night. We are going to ordain Addie Middleton. So we're so excited about that service. She is... In her life, she has had the gifts and graces of pastoral ministry for as long as I've known her, and um, we're going to honor that. And um, so when she comes and she brings you a pot roast next time, it'll be Pastor Addie Middleton. Is that fair? 
Uh, that's right, a pastoral pot roast. I, I don't know if you can say that fast a bunch of times, but oh, we love Addie, and she just does such good care, standing alongside people and loving them in some of the most difficult times in life. But we're looking forward to that. So not only are we going to have the ordination service, we'll have some worship. Um, we're also going to report out um, just from the different committees, let you know what's going on, kind of update you about the church, where we're at, how the three services are going. Um, I, I, I love this service. I know there's less people that attend this service, but by now I can just chill. You guys probably hear things that other services never could even dream of hearing as we get here. So thank you for, for being here at this 1130 service. Um, we have our fall beach baptism service on September 17th. Now you might say, Scott, you just baptized 60 children. That was children. We're getting to the adults now. So coming up on the 17th, we're going to baptize adults. You can register for that. We already have 30 people that are registered to be baptized. I mean, I'm so stoked about what God is doing in this church and in your hearts and in your lives. And so if you've not been baptized, or maybe this is a season in your life where you want to identify with the death, burial, resurrection, come talk to me um, or get signed up or somehow, but join us out there. And then also everybody can join us. That's going to be out at the, at the beach at sunset on the 17th. And then last but not least, we start a new series next week called The Gospel According to Matthew. And it's only four weeks, but we're going to do something that I, I love. We did this last year. Last year, we focused on Mark. And here's what I want you to know. We have one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. But we receive that gospel through the hands of, or the words of four different um, writers, and what I want you to know is who those writers were, how they wrote, what things did they include in their gospel that the others didn't. So when you're reading Matthew, you know that Matthew writes from a uniquely Jewish perspective. And so his Jesus is very Jewish, as we all know Jesus was. But, um, but for Matthew, Jesus comes from the Jewish faith, from Israel, and he goes out into the world. And so tracking along with that, there's gonna be so much I'm excited about. I'm jacked up about it, excited. And I invite you to come back next week and we're gonna start on that journey and tackle and then last but not least, um, this was a fun conversation. This past Wednesday night, we had our first steps dinner. It's the first time we've done it as a dinner. We had 60 folks that came that were interested in joining the church. And um, in that time, it was awesome because we, at the end of the night, we always open it up and say, does anybody have any questions? And that is like, you don't know what's going to happen in those questions. What's, when you're a preacher and you're up front, you're like, somebody else answer this one, somebody else answer this one. But we had some great questions and one of them made me laugh. Uh, one of the gentlemen that were there said, do you guys take up money in your church? Like there's no offering, like you never talk about it. Like where does that come from? And so I, I explained to him the methodology of that. And I forget that from time to time, we probably need to mention it. But yes, we are a 501c3 and we are supported by your gifts and your donations. But back when COVID kind of came through and we quit pack, passing the basket for fear of all of that stuff, what we realized is it doesn't change the amount, right? Like I, I think in society today, we don't carry a lot of cash and we haven't invented a basket yet that has a credit card swiper, so we figure that's probably not going to work. So um, what we do is we encourage you to give online, and that's what most of you do. And if, but if you're a person that gives as a reflection of worship, which many do as well, we have boxes by the doors on the way out or on the way in, and you can give a check or cash, um, whatever is, is convenient for you, and we appreciate that. So if you're new and you're like, yeah, I was wondering about that, I'm going to tell you this service is brought to you by people who want to connect people to Jesus. And so, so thank you for, for giving in the way that you do. And, and if you're looking for the electronic connection, it's the QR code on the right, I think. One of those two will get you to where you need to be. Okay, um, so today is our last Sunday in our series called One Another. And what we're doing in this series is it's really a word study 
but I can't just do a word study. I have to use giant swaths of scripture. So that's, so we're taking a word study and we're expanding it. A word study of the word in the Greek, alelon, which is one word that we break into the English language as two words. And those words are one another. And we derive that phrase from Jesus with the disciples at the Last Supper, washing their feet. And he says to the disciples, I give you a new command, that you love one another. That's the word, the alelon, that you love one another. And Jesus sets the foundation of how we're supposed to be in community together. But then we find that, that the other disciples, the other apostles, when they write to the church later on in the future when they put their words down, they pick up that phrase and they create derivatives of loving one another that teach us how to be in community with each other. So, um, so going and studying those really helps us to understand what healthy community about is about. The real purpose of this is to encourage you to find your way into, to develop, and to be a part of godly, healthy community in your lives um, and to elevate the importance of that. Uh, doesn't matter if your life has been relatively chaotic or if it's been chaos-free. There's one thing I can guarantee you, that at some point, chaos will ensue. And what I would encourage you is, is that go ahead and do the work now to build yourself a community around you that believes in Christ and that will be willing to stand with you when that chaos ensues. And be that person that will do that for others. Because what I find is that in the church, when people fall onto hard times or they're struggling through different things, those who have godly community around them fare far better. Doesn't mean that we can't stand beside you and support you if you don't, but it's just, it's just better if you've gone ahead and built it. So that's what we encourage you to do. So um, we started off by looking at um, the original statement, and we built the theology around Jesus in John 13, as I said, um, love, new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And he says this, and this is how others will know that you belong to me if you have love for one another. So the way we love and treat each other, our brothers and sisters, or the way we treat others, should reveal Christ into this world. So Jesus makes that statement. He gives us that foundational statement. But then later on in John chapter 17, he builds a theology around what it means to be one. And so Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, Father, as you are in me and as I am in you, I pray that those who would come to believe by the words of my disciples would also be one with us. And so if you understand what it means to be one and you understand what it means to love one another, then when I love you, in essence, I'm loving God. When you love me, in essence, you're loving God. And so we should be our, each other's best advocates. We shouldn't be tearing each other down and beating each other up. We should be loving one another because it is a representation of this world of the God that loves us. And so if we live appropriately into what that means, then when the world looks at us, they should crave wanting to be a believer. My fear is that what the church has turned into is, well, I don't want anything to do with that, right? Like that's been my experience at some time in some churches, not, not here, but it's a warning. So if we're doing well, great, let's don't fall back into that place. We want people to be attracted um, to the kingdom of God. And so then we went on a journey and we started to look at two other churches and today a third that where the apostle Paul picks up the one another phrase and he uses it in different ways. And so the first church we went to was Colossae. And the challenge in the, that they were dealing with in the church was this understanding of false teachers. False teachers had come in and spread a different gospel message. And Paul's response, thinking of the one another statements, is that a good, healthy, biblical community is the best response to thwarting false teaching. 
Because the one another statements that he gives are um, bear with one another, love one another, um, forgive one another, teach one another, admonish one another. And so what he would say is if a healthy community is working the way that they're supposed to, even though false teachers come in, people will call it onto the carpet, they'll deal with it, they'll get it out, and the church will learn how to go forward together. So for Paul, healthy community combats false teaching. Then last week we went to Ephesus and we read the letter to the Ephesians. And I'm going to tell you that 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 letter is, it's just, it's a theological masterpiece. Chapters one through three, he builds the theology of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God's plan through Christ to reconcile the world to himself. Go read chapter one, uh, just the, the first part of it. It will explain to you your faith. It's like the cliff notes on the faith. And so he builds that theology all the way through. And then he gets to chapter four. And this is where we pick up our one another statements. Then he asks us, he said, I beg you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And so what you find in Paul is, and then he gives us, and then he gives the one another statements. What you find for Paul is our response to what God does in this world through Christ is to live into these one another statements. That's our response to living a calling that is worthy of what Christ has done to bear with one another, to love one another, to, um, to cherish, to all of those different things that go along the one another's in Ephesus. And Ephesus is that general letter that he's given to the church. He wasn't really writing to combat any issues. He was just teaching the church how to be together. And so today, um, we are going to shift to a city called Philippi, which is a Greco-Roman city. I'm going to give you some information about it, but we're going to look at at Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I'm excited about it. And I'll tell you, the first two messages where we end this message, I think is so powerful. And there were multiple people in each service that were, that opened up their hearts to believe and to, or to get their hearts back in line with Christ and to kind of re-energize their, their hearts and their love for God. Um, just beautiful, I think, the message that Paul gives us in, in Philippians. So I want to set that expectation to, to hopefully just that this same message will do that for you today. So what you need to know about Philippi is that there was a population in this city of about 10,000 people. Um, as I said, it was a, it's a Greek city, but it's a Roman colony. Uh, so if you're from Rome, if you were to go to Philippi, you would have all of the, all of the rights of any Roman citizens um, that were there to include um, not self-governance, but governance of the people by the magistrates that they put in place. So you would uh, have a fair trial. You would also have tax exemption. You would have all sorts of things if you were a Roman citizen going into this community. Um, the city was populated, I love this, um, with retired Roman soldiers, So thinking that we live in this military community, we have not only um, active military, but we also have many retired military. Philippi in 31, 32-ish BC, um, the, the Praetorian Guard or the retired Praetorian Guard that lived in Rome, they lost their rights to their land. And so the emperor comes up with a plan. He moves them from Rome to Philippi and gives them land. And he allows them to live there, to farm there, and to be Roman citizens there all the way out on the edge of, um, of this landmass that we're going to look at here today. So that was done in 30-something BC. So imagine when Paul shows up in the early 40s. It's 70 years later, and those thousand people have probably multiplied and make up the bulk of the community that they're looking at. So these are retired military folks or families. And, and it makes sense if you think about it, if you're Rome. Um, 
you know, if you're, if you're conquering the world or if you've conquered the known world, why wouldn't you take retired soldiers and put them out on the edge of what you know as to be the frontier? These are people that served with you, that know Rome, that know the culture. Give them their rights, place them out there, and it's an easy, defendable position because you have those soldiers, even though they're retired, living out in those areas. And so that's how Rome um, uh, sometimes lived in this world. And that's the city that Paul shows up in. So um, here we go with our map. Um, here's the, these arrows that show up on this map. This is Paul's second missionary journey in which he starts the church in Philippi. So as he gets over here, he crosses over across the Aegean Sea, pops into Neapolis. And if you want to read about this, it's in Acts chapter 16. And then he makes his way up to Philippi. Now, one of the things that I love when I find this stuff is you see this little word right here, the Ignatian Way. There is a road that was built in antiquity Rome finished it up or took, in, took anything that was broken and saw and fixed it. But there is a road that goes all the way from this spot right here near the Black Sea and connects all the way through here, through Neapolis, through Philippi, all the way through Thessalonica, all the way across over to the Adriatic Sea. It's one of those modern, it's, it's a wonder of the ancient world that they had this. But if you were Rome and you had to get your troops from one part of the world to the other, wouldn't you agree it's best to do that on a road? So they build the Ignatian Way and it connected from coast to coast. And so that's how Rome would, would move that. So I only say that to say this, when, when uh, Paul goes up into Philippi, he would have made his way up into Philippi from, the, from um, east to west. And as he goes into the city, this is the first thing he would have encountered on the Ignatian Way, this theater. Now you look at that theater, it's big, but it's not like the theater that was in Ephesus that we looked at last week. Remember 25,000 people? Um, Rome would build their theaters based on the inhabitants of the community. So 10,000 people would probably seat about 1,000 people. That's how they would tell what the population basically was. And so he would go by here. They would have gladiator fights, all of that stuff that was here. Right out here is the Ignatian Way. It goes right by this theater and right on down. Go ahead and go to the next picture. And it goes down to the next part of the city. Now this here is actually the Ignatian Way. Now, why does Scott show you this? It looks like a bunch of rocks and grass. I love this. See this right here? And you see this, this right here? What are those? Those are ruts. What do you think caused those? Ch chariot wheels or wagons. Ah, like I, in the trips that we've gone to Israel in, I, I will get down on my hands and my knees and I'll run my hands through those ruts because it is evidence of the life that was lived there before, life that took place inside the city. And this is the Ignatian Road where the army, the troops, the troops would have marched right through Philippi and right on by if they were going into a different area, the Agora and all of the other meeting places over here. But I wanted you just to see and to imagine. And here's, this is another important announcement. So people have been asking about a trip to Israel. We're going back in December of 2024. Um, the, the, the newsletter comes out next week with the registration. We were able to take 50 people. And so I just want to tell you so that you can expect that that's going to be coming out. Um, we're looking forward to being able to get back to Israel. Uh, so go on and go to the next picture. This shows a kind of a, a side view of what the city looks like. The Ignatian Way is right on the other side of this modern highway, right down on the bottom of this hill. Um, and this kind of gives you a layout of what the city looks like, but you can see churches that were built afterwards. Go ahead and go to the next one. Here it is labeled. Here's the forum. This is where the political stuff would have taken place. Also, you have these little shops over here, maybe some houses, but here's the Agora. If you go back and you read Acts 16, Paul encounters this woman who's a fortune teller or a future, she predicts the future, and Paul gets sick and tired of listening to her, and so he casts the demon out of her, and she is no longer able to predict the future. And so the people who used her to make money are very, very upset about that, and they throw him in prison. 
Here it is right here. Here is the prison and here's the front side of it. This is the prison 100%. Maybe, right? Who knows? They believe this to be a prison, but it's there. So um, it's one that they found that could be the prison, might not be. But up here is where the other picture was taken from. So it kind of gives you the layout of the land. Go ahead and go to the next picture. Here's this river. Um, the name of this river is uh, the, the, the Crinities River. Now, why is Scott showing you a picture of a river? When Paul goes into Philippi, his normal pattern in the way he spread the gospel is he would find a synagogue, he would preach to the Jews there, and then they would start to spread and talk about the message of Christ. Well, there's no synagogue in Philippi. It's a Greco-Roman city. There was, no, there was not a Jewish population there. So what you would do if you were Jewish or if you were a believer in the Jewish God, the one God, um, you would, on the day of Shabbat, you would go outside the city to the closest place of living water. Living water means flowing water. And there you would have prayer or there you would have your service. The Crinities River, right here in this spot, 100%, probably not likely, but that's the river, um, is where Paul goes and he he encounters a particular woman. And this woman's name is Lydia. And scripture gives us information about Lydia that if you're just reading it, you don't think anything of it. But if you're thinking in antiquity, it's astounding that Lydia is a dealer in purple cloth. And, um, and so she, it tells you that she's from Thyatira. And, um, and so he, she receives the gospel. She prays and Paul baptizes her right there. And then she does something that blows everybody away. She invites all the disciples to come stay at her house. So you have a woman in antiquity who not only owns her own business, and it's a very prominent business. Dealing in purple is not just scratch work. This is very prominent. Um, she would have been a part of the guild. And then she invites them to their house. So she owned houses. And, and biblical scholars believe that Lydia was a person of great means. Now, why do I tell you this? Because the role of women in the New Testament is astounding. Well, let's just say in our Bible, it's astounding. It's possible when we read here in a little bit in Philippians that Lydia might have been the one that single-handedly helped to fund the spread of the gospel across the world through the work of Paul. Um, so please hear me. Women are all in this text. It's all in this scripture. And if you struggle with women in ministry, I would love to talk to you. Um, you know why you don't see a lot more women in prominent roles? Guess who wrote these books? Men. And so they included it different, right? They wrote in context, they wrote in different things, and so they weren't often included. But I want to tell you, they're there and they're very prominent. Now, here's the issue that you come up with Lydia. A lot of people say, well, how could she be a dealer in purple? Because she's from Thyatira. Let me show you a picture where Thyatira is. So here's the big map. This is Philippi. Thyatira is over here in the middle of, of Asia um, or in the middle of Galatia. Uh, it's over there in the middle of the mountains. What you need to know is that in order to make purple cloth, typically it's made out of the blood that's drawn out of mollusks. Those mollusks are crushed and they use that blood to dye the purple fabric that's sold for a very expensive amount. In Thyatira and in that region, they discovered this plant right here. It's called matter root. If you take that plant and you crush it up, the dye from the roots creates a crimson or even a purple dye that if added to a bonding agent can dye fabric in the very same way as they do the blood from the mollusks. And so what you find is God providing for this position and this position of wealth to happen to really explode and to be able to pass the gospel on. And so Lydia could have been one of those real prominent roles. Why do I tell you that? I just want you to know. I think that's cool. I love scripture and I want you to be able to see some of those parts that are there. And um, anyways, so there's that. So let's get into our text. So one of the things you need to know about this letter is um, that it's amazing. It's personal. There's parts of it that... Um, 
are, uh, feel like Paul is, is really close and intimate and knows this church in ways that maybe he doesn't know the other churches. Um, one thing that I like to say is that whoever um, started the corporation of Hobby Lobby must have been related to Paul because those signs that you buy, they all come out of Philippians, right? All of the notable quotables are on signs in Hobby Lobby. So here's, here's a few. Uh, for me, Paul says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's one that you know of. Um, he, he who began a good work in you will be, bring it to completion. And here's one that Tim Tebow made popular for everybody. I can do all things through who? Through Christ who gives me strength, right? So it's a quotable book. So many people for some reason like Philippians because of the way that it's worded. And I believe it's because of his connection to the people. And what you find out when you read it, when you get back into chapter four, is that the church of Philippi does things for Paul that other churches weren't doing. So when Paul leaves Philippi and he goes on in his journey and he gets over into Thessalonica, he gets himself into trouble, needs some resource, and guess who sends it? Philippi. He continues on down into Corinth, Philippi. Philippi supports him when other churches wouldn't. They send resources, they send money, they send supplies. And even when he's writing this letter as a prison epistle, they still send someone to bring resource to him to support him all the way in Rome. That's how much this church took and took care of him. So there's a connection. I'd only say that to say to you that there's a connection to these people through, through Paul and you just, you can't deny it. So now um, we're going to read it and um, we're going to unpack and look at our one another statements, which are both found in chapter two. But um, just to kind of set it up, if you started in chapter one, he introduces this letter to the church. And this is how we know that the church inside of Philippi was a healthy church and it was a mature church because he addresses it to the bishops and deacons. Now we hear that and we're like, bishops and deacons, that sounds like, right? Like up there, bishops and deacons translates into overseers and helpers. But there was a hierarchy in the church, which means it didn't just begin. There is a good life that's going on and a good growth that they're experiencing. So he starts off by praying for them. He explains to them the circumstances that he's in prison. And then he ends chapter one by, by giving them the same invitation that he gave in Ephesians, that you would make a decision to live a life worthy of, of what Christ has done for you. And then we get to chapter two, verse one. He says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and any sympathy. If, if you have any connection to Christ, if God is ministering to your heart, if there is anything that God has drawn you into about, verse two, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, that theme shows up in all of them, even all the way to the very first where Jesus talks about being one. As believers and as the body of Christ, we are one. That's one of heart, one of mind, one of focus. And so that's his plea, that if there is any drawing together as the body of Christ, his plea is that we would be one and we would understand that singular focus and importance that God has given us in our lives. Verse three, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, here's our one another statement, regard others as better than yourselves. Now that's hard for us to hear and we're gonna unpack that, but regard others as better than yourselves. Verse four, let each of you look not to your own interests, that makes us uncomfortable, but to the interests of others. And so those two one another statements are a little different than the ones that we've dealt with in previous books. These require an extra level of commitment, an extra level of sacrifice in order for us to be a part of and to participate in what he's asking us to do. 
to think of others as better than ourselves, to, um, to look not to our interests, but to the interests of others. But Paul does something so amazing. He doesn't just give them to us as a suggestion. Now he connects them to the life of Christ. Verse five, he says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Now I love, he doesn't say Jesus Christ. That's okay. He says Christ Jesus. He starts with his deity, with Christ Jesus. So let the same mind be in you that was in Jesus who is God. And now he's going to explain it. Verses six, seven, and eight. I'm going to tell you these are, these are evangelistic, the way that they unfold, but it's going to take some work. Here we go. He says, and let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. And so he says, have the same mind of Jesus, who, even though he was God, he didn't regard being God as something that should be lorded over or exploited over. He doesn't tell you yet, but he says it, it, it wasn't something to be exploited. Now that's interesting because it tells us there's a problem that's going on. There is something that doesn't match up to the level of what God is talking about. So he didn't, he didn't want to exploit that. Verses seven and eight, he says, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. That's an important word. Um, why do I say that? Because as far as we know, when we read the text, Jesus wasn't a slave, right? He was a rabbi. So Paul is trying to tell us something here. He says, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here you have this Jesus who was God, but he didn't equate um, equality or he didn't, he didn't consider equality with God as something to be lorded, but he emptied himself and he became a slave even to the obedience of death. So what you're finding is this, this message of Christ where there is a brokenness and there is a death that is settled on humanity and Jesus wants to do something about it. That although he's God and he's separated from this, he wants to make a way to provide a way for that humanity to come back. And so he empties himself and he allows himself to become subject even to this death. Now that's hard to wrestle with the understanding of a God that was willing to die. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He values humanity to the point that he wasn't going to allow humanity to stay in that place. And so he does something about it. And listen to what the father does in verse nine. This is where you get the other side of it. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And so what's God's response to Jesus doing this? When Jesus does this, God then takes and elevates Jesus, thus giving him power over death defeating death by elevating him, by lifting him up, by giving him life back. Now Jesus has, in this understanding of what Paul is writing here, defeated that death that has plagued humanity. And then you get these last verses, and we're going to hinge the rest of the message on this. He says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven on earth and under earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, of God, God the Father. So it's interesting and we're going to come back to this, what we've done in our Western theology is we oftentimes take those last few verses and we like to say, hey, if you don't believe in God now, you're going to be forced to believe in him later. So you bow your knee now or you bow your knee later, but at some point you're going to bow, right? And, and I hear that and I'm going to tell you those are harsh words, but what I want you to hear me say is I believe that there's a deeper understanding and meaning to this where it's not a threat, I believe it's an invitation, and so when we come back around, I'm going to unpack it for you to hope you see it, that I think it's an invitation that Paul is, is offering us here as opposed to a threat that I think we've turned our theology into. Verse 12, 
Now, this is your response. So Paul would say, what would you do with this? He says, therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much now, much more now in my absence. <laughs> Check out this verse. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, here's an example of why we don't take scripture out of context. Because if we started there and we just said, hey, Paul told you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, what would that mean? Save yourselves. Everybody for themselves. But we know that's not true. He goes on, and if you read the very next verse in verse 13, he says, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why? Because we couldn't save ourselves. And so here's a better way to understand that. Working out our salvation, if you're a believer, you are saved and your salvation is set. Working it out with fear and trembling is to now work through the process of transformation to reveal that life that we are supposed to represent. And so as we go through the processes and we work through and allow God to bring that garbage away, ultimately at the end when we stand whole before God and we stand before humanity, when they look at us, the hope is if we've done the work that people will see more of Jesus in us than, we, than they see of ourselves. And so that's how that verse works out. Verse 14 and 15, he says, do all things without murmuring and arguing so that, here's the, here's the evangelistic part, you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. And for Paul, if we lived into these one another lives, if we lived truly to love one, love one another as I have loved you, if we live that life, then we should stand out in this chaotic, crazy, perverse world. We shouldn't blend in and look like every other organization that's out there. People should be running to the church, looking for hope, looking for help, finding people that will help bind their wounds and bring them back to a place of health. That's what the church is supposed to look like, a bright shining star in this world today. And so I'm just gonna tell you as a pastor, we all have work to do. Because people, although there are people coming to the church, they should be flocking because of the lives that we live. And so I, I work with, with that supposition in my life as I, as I think about how we should be as believers. Okay, so, um, so after reading all of that, I wanna close out the series in, a, in a, um, an interesting way. I wanna close out the series of a lay loan um, with what may be the clearest or possibly the most confusing call for salvation in history, right? So I'm gonna try and explain this. It worked great in the first service, got a little wonky in the second service, and so this could be a total disaster, but let's see how it works out, okay? But I love doing theological work, and let's, let's just press through it. And, and what I know is, is I'm fallible, and hopefully God can take these words and, and use them. And so here we go. In, in our, um, and I need to say this too, in our, nope, not gonna say that yet. So we end our series with two one another statements that really are pretty shocking. They don't fit into our culture well and they challenge us, right? Up until now, all of the one another statements that we've been asked to, to participate in, they're, they're doable. Um, bearing with one another, teaching one another, admonishing one another, forgiving one another, speaking the truth in, uh, uh, to one another, uh, being kind to one another, being tenderhearted to one another, all of those we can do to some degree in and of ourselves. Those are all doable. But these two are different. They require a different level of sacrifice and a different level of understanding. Do nothing from selfish ambition. But in humility, regard one another as better than yourself. Like it just feels odd. The second one, look not, only to, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of 
one another. So, so don't be concerned about yourself. Have a heart that is concerned about other people, right? Those two things, I'm gonna tell you, are not typical American Western ideals, right? We're usually about being our best life, accomplishing everything that we can possibly accomplish, about being the best, not thinking of others as better than ourselves. And so they're different ideals. But what Paul does that really jacks us up is he takes and he connects these two ideals, these two one another statements to the life of Christ and to the very core of the identity of who Jesus was. And he says this, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. So that means you have to wrestle with what this mind was all about. What is it about this God who empties himself and comes and lives on this earth to try and defeat this thing of death, right? And I'll tell you the verse that you're gonna know, for God so loved the world that he gave. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't say, for God so loved the people that are trying really hard and are relatively good, he loved them so much that he gave. It doesn't say that. He says, for God so loved the world, there is a value that God puts on human nature that exceeds anything we could ever possibly imagine. And so Paul connects these one another statements to the very mind of Christ, and he's asking us to participate in that. And so what he does is, is this mindset that Christ has brings him to a place to where Jesus empties himself, he lowers himself, he gives himself, he regards others as better than himself, he treats and looks after the interests of others, all for the sake of breaking the power of death and its stronghold over humanity. And here's the kicker. When God sees it, what does he do? He elevates Christ Jesus. He elevates him and he gives him the name that is above all names. And so what does this tell you? That this ideal is the father's ideal as well. Because when Jesus lives that life and he gives his life, the father looks and says, that's the marker. That is the one that I'm gonna elevate above everyone else. You can say that that is first. You can say that that's Lord, but he elevates Christ to this place. All right, so, um, so here we go. Now, what typically happens is then we read the next two verses. And this turns into something interesting. So after, you, what he says is, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. And then we get to the, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we get to this place in churches where we talk about every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so there's a decision to be made and there's usually a conversation about hell that follows somewhere in this place. On Wednesday night, two great conversations were had about our church. And one of the questions that were asked was this, Scott, why don't you do an altar call? Why don't you have people close their eyes, raise their hands, come forward? Why don't you do that? And we talked about it a little bit. Mine, mine and Tammy, we come from a faith system um, that, that just the way that was handled concerns me, right? Like people that raise their hands, but I, don't, I, don't, I wanna make sure they understand the decision that they're making. Uh, simply raising your hand and saying yes doesn't mean that you truly believe. But then also, I don't want people to not raise their hand, miss an opportunity, and think that they've missed that opportunity, but in their hearts, they truly believe. So in my theology, I struggle with people being confused. I like to have more of an understanding and more of an invitation, right? But then somebody asked the very next question. Well, Scott, do you talk about hell? Why don't you talk about hell? Is that something that you'd ever preach a series on? And I'm like, oh, that would be interesting um, to be able to do that. And, and here's what I would say. It's not that I don't believe in hell. I do believe in hell. But in this church, we have every denomination you could ever possibly imagine. And if we were to try and talk about hell, we would have to talk about the denominations that believe all the way from a fiery pit in the center of, the earth, of this earth, all the way over to hell being the absence of God and anything good and everything in between. 
And so here's what I want to say to you. Do I want people to make a decision to not go to hell? The answer is yes. I don't want you to have to deal with any of that. But here's what we're missing. Paul is not threatening anyone. He's giving them an invitation. And here's how this unfolds. When you get to this part, you are faced with a choice. You have a life, verses six, seven, and eight, that is a life that will ultimately end in death and separation from God. You can choose to keep that life and what that life comes along with. Or you can understand the message of the gospel, which tells us that there was a God that so loved this world that he came down to break the power that that death has over you. And because he did that, and because he lowered himself and he emptied himself, then therefore his name was raised high above every other name, and you are given an opportunity to do something. You are given an opportunity to believe in him, to confess him as Lord, and to empty yourselves and to yield that other life. Does that make sense? And to let go of that other life, thus yielding your very self as well. Right now, you can say, Scott, does that mean that every knee is not going to bow and every tongue is not going to confess? No, no, no. Every knee will and every, and every tongue will confess. But here's what I want to tell you. I don't like to lead this conversation by scaring the hell out of people because I've seen people make a decision for God out of fear of not wanting to go to hell. And I'll tell you, it's not the same thing. Because once the fear is gone, then that decision wanes and it starts to fall off. And I've seen people just go right back into the life that's there. I would rather invite you to believe in Christ. There is a difference between somebody making a decision to not go to hell and me saying to you, I choose Christ. And I invite you to do the very same thing. I want you to experience life. And so the way we go about it in this church is we open up the opportunity and we teach and we preach and we invite you to be a part of the living God who has life and wants to stand alongside you in it. Does it mean you're gonna be perfect? No. If you read on forward into Paul, what does he say? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because you're gonna fail. You're gonna blow it. But don't worry, God is at work inside of you that is helping you to perfect work through sanctification and get to that place to where you will ultimately stand and be presented to God as cleansed and as whole. Does any of that make sense? Amen. Right, so here, here's how I want to close this service, and this may be the strangest thing that I have ever done, but I've done it twice today. I want to invite you to participate in what I'm calling a reverse altar call. Yep, it's just as crazy to you as it is to me. And what I want to do for all of those who believe and those who maybe today is your opportunity to open up your heart and believe is invite every single person in here that is a believer in Jesus or who wants to be a believer in Jesus, if you're able to go ahead and stand. And let me tell you what I love about this. This doesn't put the onus on the person who has to walk the aisle. This allows the person who wants to open up their heart to see that they are surrounded by people who are not perfect, but they're in this journey together and they believe in Jesus. And it also puts the responsibility on us to understand that we have a role to play in transformation that when we live our lives out, people will see us and hopefully they will be attracted to the God that loves them. And so today, it's simply opening up your heart and saying, Jesus, be my Lord. I confess today, Jesus, you are the son of God. You are Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. <laughs> I thank you for the beauty of this day. God, people having the opportunity to stand for their faith. How amazing is that? 
And God, in each service, people that came forward, um, whether during the service or after the service, that, that are so struggling with their faith and made a decision today to believe, Lord, that's what's going on in this place and in this community. And God, I pray that it continues. And not because people are afraid of something, but because people are running to something. The God that loves them, that offers them hope and offers them life. And there are people in this room today that will open up their hearts and choose to believe that very same way. And so God, I pray that you would flood their hearts, offer forgiveness, offer hope as we proclaim you as Lord Jesus. God, help us as the church to represent you in ways that maybe we've never done very well at so that people will be attracted to the kingdom and not pushed away and repulsed. We love you. We trust you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, as we sing this final song, I encourage you to sing along with the band. Addie is down front here. I'll be on this side. We'd love to pray with you today. Um, but enjoy this final moments as we prepare to close the service today. All these pieces broken and scattered In mercy gathered, mended and Empty-handed, but not forsaken. I've been set free. I've been set free. Amazing grace has saved us out.
yourself down and raising up the broken to life. Man. Well, amen. Come on. I don't know about you, but uh, as Scott was preaching today, all I could think of was was really what God's called us to be as a church, what our mission is. That, that everything we've talked about is that, that God really calls us to love Him and to love others, and, and by virtue of that, connect people to Jesus. Uh, and so I hope you felt that today. I hope that today you were encouraged and, and maybe challenged to step out and love people in a new way or a better way. I know I was. Um, and the reality is, we can't do it alone, right? We need one another. And so if you're looking for a way to connect into church life, maybe it's your first Sunday here, or you've been here for a long time, but you want to take that next step into connection, we've got our team waiting and ready for you in our Next Steps room just out in the lobby, right on the other side of this wall. We'd love to help you take that next step to connect with others that are going to help you move forward in this life. But let's pray as we close out service. God, I just want to thank you today, Lord. God, I thank you that, God, what you call us to, God, that you did, that you modeled it. God, that you lowered yourself to the form of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And, God, because you were raised to new life, we have hope to be raised to new life, God. And then I pray today that right now as we move forward into this week, that, God, you would build up new life inside of us, a new life that, that desires to love others, that desires to love you well, God, that desires to move forward and be champions of your love for our world, God. I pray for every person in this room that they would leave out of here today encouraged and filled with your spirit to go and do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, guys.
seasons of winter and you'd give anything to feel the sun always raging always climbing always second guessing the timing but god has a plan a purpose